So, All right, Acts chapter 13, verse 13. That's where we're going to begin this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Lord, as we bow before you this morning, we once again are thankful for so many things. We're thankful for our spouses. We're thankful for our families. We're thankful for our church. We're thankful for uh, the opportunity that you give us to work and to uh, make income to meet our needs and to support your work. Thank you for all you do for us, but nothing can we thank you greater for than for the cross and for what your son Jesus did for us on Calvary's cross where he bore in his body our sin so that by putting our trust in him, we might have the hope of eternal life. Not a hope so, but assurance that we are yours from the moment we put our trust in you. Thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you for so great a savior. Help us to appreciate him, not just at Thanksgiving, but in every day of our lives. And many times every day in every day of our lives, may we be thankful for a Savior who loved us so. Thank you for your word. It's truth. We ask you that we might be receptive to it and that we might hear what you have to say and respond accordingly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Acts chapter 13, a couple of things are going to happen in this particular passage. We've already seen in the earlier part of chapter 13 where Paul and Barnabas and John Mark went uh, on the, what we call the first missionary journey. Uh, they, they, um, uh, we saw what happened uh, in the passage last week, they went on their way, sent by the Holy Spirit, verse 4 tells us. They went down to Seleucia, sailed from there to Cyprus, and you know what happened to Cyprus. Sergius Paulus, the governor of Cyprus, came to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's where we are in the book of Acts and in the first missionary journey. In this particular section, we're going to see that some changes come to the missionary team. We talked about them last week. We, we uh, referred to some of the changes that would come. And today, in our passage this morning, particularly in verse 13, we see that one of the major changes takes place and how the missionary team responds to that major change. But the greater part of chapter 13 has to do with one of Paul's sample sermons. This is one of the two or three or four times in the book of Acts where Luke gives us a sample of Paul's preaching, a sample of Paul's sharing, a sample of how Paul shared the gospel, how he witnessed to those that God set before him. In the book Daily Discipleship, which I have been enjoying using in the past couple of months uh, as a daily devotional, and I recommend it to you. The problem is it's out of print, so you got to get a used copy. You can't find a new copy, and, uh, but
but I recommend it highly to you. You can still find used copies of Daily Discipleship by Leroy Imes. He makes this observation, and I'd like to uh, share his words. He said this, I have seen men and women who are normally the life of the party able to hold their own and discuss practically anything, clam up and hide quietly in the corner when an opportunity to present the gospel came along. He said, maybe you're like that. If so, let me ask you a question. Has hearing the gospel ever turned a person into a drunk? I don't think so. Has hearing the gospel ever gotten a person on drugs? No. Has the gospel turned good people bad? Obviously not. Has the gospel turned people from love to hate? No. Good things happen when people respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good things happen in their lives. That doesn't mean that difficult things don't come. But it's a good thing to respond to the gospel. Well, Imes goes on to say, I guarantee that if you took a minute and made a list of all the good things the gospel does, and in another column list all the bad things that the gospel does, I guarantee that you'll find one of your lists quite long and the other list non-existent. The gospel does good things. Why is it that we tend to shy back when we have an opportunity? I mean, we'll share our expertise on just about anything with anybody until it comes to the gospel. All of a sudden, we can't find the words. All of a sudden, we're afraid. Himes goes on to say the word gospel means good news, but the way we hesitate to share the message of the gospel would make a person think it was bad news. Wherever you live, work, or play, people need to hear the good tidings of great joy that a Savior is born. The gospel of Christ is good news. The gospel of Christ is good news. The good news includes a couple of things Paul tells us in this section, and we'll see it as we get to the part of chapter 13 where we have Paul's message. But a couple of things that Paul wants us to see is that, first of all, Jesus is God's long-awaited deliverer. Jesus is God's long-awaited deliverer. We'll see that as we go through chapter 13. Secondly, he wants us to see that Jesus could do what the law could never do. The law could never provide forgiveness of sins, but Jesus provides forgiveness of sins. He does what the law was powerless to do. A third thing we're going to see as we go through chapter 13 is that death could not hold Jesus Christ. He conquered death and he offers us eternal life. William Erdman, a great earlier teacher of the Word of God, said this, this section, chapter 13, verses 13 to 52, sets forth the missionary message for all times and lands. Circumstances demand minor variations, but the essence is ever the same. So we're going to get a good sample of Paul's preaching in chapter 13. 
We're going to see Paul's methodology. We're going to see it both in his message as well as the strategy he used as he took the gospel message to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, before we get to that, we need a little travelogue. Luke gives us a little travelogue. He's really good about that. Many of the things he's describing here in the book of Acts, he was a part of it, so he's an eyewitness to these things. But we're going to get a little bit of a travelogue as we begin chapter 13 and verse 13, and then we're going to see the changes that come to the missionary team. The changes that come to the missionary team. So we read in verse 13 from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. Are you confused yet? If you, if you have a paper Bible, I don't know about the electronic Bibles you use, but if you have a paper Bible, almost all paper Bibles in the back have what? Maps! Never read an historical book without a map so you can follow what the action is. If you're reading in the Old Testament, Genesis... Exodus, use a map. If you're reading in the book of Acts, use a map. Well, Pamphylia, Perga in Pamphylia. Pamphylia is the southern coast of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. Present-day Turkey, and Pamphylia is the southern coast. They leave Paphos, which is uh, on the island, and they set sail about 180 miles to Perga, which is the chief city of Pamphylia. From there, we're told, John Mark left them to return to Jerusalem. John Mark left them to return to Jerusalem. Now that's pretty interesting. Why would he leave? And why would he leave so early in the missionary journey? They've only been to the island of Cyprus. They've only ministered in a couple of places in Cyprus. Why all of a sudden would John Mark decide that I want to go home? Well, we're not told ever in the scripture, why he left. We're not told what the reason is. There is a lot of speculation about why John Paul left. And I'll share with you some of the speculation about why he left. But what I want you to see most of all here is we read from Paphos, Paul and his companions. Do you notice that all of a sudden Paul's name comes first? Up to this point, it's been Barnabas's name. But now Paul's name comes first. And literally, this phrase from Paphos, Paul and his companions, the phrase Paul and his companions is a Greek idiom that, to mean a man and his followers. Suddenly, <clears throat> we have things reversed. Paul takes first chair, so to speak. Paul begins to lead the missionary team. Barnabas takes second place in the, missionaries team, in the missionary team. And John Paul leads. John Mark, excuse me, John Mark leaves. First thing I want us to see is what one writer calls the greatness of Barnabas. 
We talked about it a little bit last week. I'll just mention it this morning. The writer said this, In nothing is the greatness of Barnabas more manifest than in his recognition of the superiority of Paul and acceptance of a secondary position for himself. What a great leader he was that he could step back say, Paul, take first chair. That shows a greatness in Barnabas. What one writer called a greatness of soul. A greatness of soul. He was a great soul. But you know, we've already seen his character. We've already seen the descriptions of him in the book of Acts. A man full of the Holy Spirit, that is, a man who is controlled by the Spirit of God. And because he's controlled by the Spirit of God, his, his thoughts, his heart, his character is controlled by the Word of God. That's the kind of person he was. He's the kind of person who was an encourager and was ready and able and willing to encourage the people around him. So I like that description. He had a greatness of soul about him. There's an old saying that goes something like this. It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. True, isn't it? It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Actually, to endure change and to endure it well is, takes flexibility. It takes flexibility. That's the key word. We have to meet change in our lives with confidence in God and flexibility, the ability to react in a biblical way, the ability ability to react in a God-honoring way to the changes that come into our lives because there are always changes. Flexibility. John C. Maxwell, another... uh, I told you I'm I'm addicted to devotional books. Haven't I told you that? I, I am. I just... I have, I don't know how many devotional books in my library, and I, I use more than I should every day. Well, one of them that I really like is by John Maxwell. You, how many of you are familiar with John Maxwell? Yeah, most of you. John Maxwell has the Maxwell Daily Reader, which I enjoy reading. It's uh, about leadership mostly, but there's so much in his book that goes beyond just leadership. But he's talking about change in, a, in a, uh, one of his, his uh, devotionals. And he says this, you don't have to love change to be successful, but you need to be willing to accept it. That is, you need to be flexible. You don't have to love it. You don't have to love it. He said, perhaps the most relentless enemy of achievement, personal growth, and success is inflexibility. That is, the, when you won't respond to change. When you fight change, say, I'm not going to let this happen. He said, the most relentless enemy of achievement, personal growth, and success is inflexibility. He said this, a friend sent me the top 10 strategies for dealing with a dead horse, which he said, I think is hilarious. I thought so too. So I thought I'd share it with you. 
Top 10 strategies for dealing with a dead horse. Number one, buy a stronger whip. Number two, change riders. Number three, appoint a committee to study the horse. <laughs> that was my favorite. Number four, appoint a team to revive the horse. Number five, send out a memo declaring the horse isn't really dead. <laughs> oh, uh, so much I could say about that. Number six, hire an expensive consultant to find the real problem. Number seven, Harness several dead horses together for increased speed and efficiency. <laughs> Number eight, rewrite the standard definition of live horse. <laughs> Number nine, declare the horse to be better, faster, and cheaper when dead. And number 10, promote the dead horse to a supervisory position. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> I, I just love that. His point, though, is, is a real point. Change is going to come into our lives, and we need flexibility to respond to that change. The sad part is that John Mark could not accept the change. He could not accept the change. He wasn't flexible enough. He didn't have enough confidence in what God was doing, enough confidence in the way God had designed things for this missionary team that he couldn't be flexible. So we see this change in the leadership team. I think that the reason that John Mark left is because of this change. Now, there are other reasons, and, and some very good, um, Dr. Stanley Toussaint forever, for, uh, for example, has given us some of the reasons that John Mark may have left. First reason is resentment over the change in leadership from Barnabas to Paul. After all, Barnabas is his cousin, is John Mark's cousin, remember? Barnabas is John Mark's cousin. So therefore, there was resentment over the change in leadership from Barnabas, who is his cousin, to Paul. The second possible reason for his leaving them is there was disagreement over the strategy. He, after all, was a Palestinian Jew. And he may not have liked Paul's new strategy, which was directly approaching the Gentiles. And he may not have liked that strategy. A third possible reason is the inability to endure hardship. The hardship that would come in travel. You see, there was, this was a difficult area to traverse. There was dangerous travel ahead. Danger from the topography, danger from robbers. They would cross the Tarsus Mountains and therefore, perhaps, he had an inability to endure the hardship of travel. He just didn't want to do it. 
He thought it was going to be easy. One of the missionary greats of the past was told that we have some men who will come out and help you if there's an easy path to get to where you're at. He said, if they need an easy path, I don't want them. I don't want them. May have been John Mark was expecting more of a vacation than the work that was ahead. A fourth possibility is that it's possible that malaria struck him or Paul or perhaps both of them. The area they were in was an area where malaria was big. Though Luke doesn't mention it at this point. If you look up, and we don't have time, but if you'll look up Galatians 4.13 and 2 Corinthians 12.7 where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh and in Galatians 4.13 he talks to the Galatians. By the way, that was the letter that he wrote right after he went through this area of the world. Writing to the Galatians. He talks about how they accepted him though he became very ill while he was with them. So it may be an, an illness that either John Mark endured or that Paul endured, and he didn't, he didn't want any part of it. He wanted to go home, which leads to the fifth possibility is that he was homesick. It's possible he was homesick. It's possible, remember, his mother was a, a widow, possibly, and uh, his church was the center of the Jerusalem church, uh, his home rather, was the center of the Jerusalem church, and so it's, it's possible that he was homesick, and that's the reason he returned. Uh, you know, there's no way to know. Uh, I tend to want to go with the simplest reason, the simplest explanation, and I think the simplest explanation is he resented Paul's taking his cousin's place. It's easy for us to fall into resentment, isn't it? It's easy for us to fall into that kind of resentment. And I think he left them. My, my personal opinion is he left them for that reason. He resented Paul's leadership, Paul's taking over, which would have included Paul's direct approach to Gentiles. Whatever John Mark's reasons, Paul considered it a desertion. Paul considered a desertion. We're going to see that later on in chapter 15. It led to such a problem between he and Barnabas later on after they returned from their first missionary journey. It led to such a problem and disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that the missionary team split up. And Barnabas took John Paul and went in one direction. And Paul took Silas and went in another direction. But that's chapter 15. We'll get to that. That's the downside. The upside is that Paul, and we'll see this later when we get to chapter 15, the upside is that Paul and John Mark were reconciled to each other. So much so that Paul said, send John Mark to me for he is helpful to me. You see, we can get at odds with one another, but we ought to forgive each other. And that eventually happened here. So, Paul is now the leader of the group. John Mark leaves them to return to Jerusalem. 
In verse 14, we read from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. Now, there were 16 cities named Antioch in that day. <laughs> 16 cities were named Antioch. Why is that? Because there was an earlier emperor who every time he conquered an area named the city Antioch after his father who was named Antiochus and his son who was also named Antiochus. So everywhere he went, every city he conquered became what? Antioch. Antioch. Remember the sending church for Paul and Barnabas and John Mark was Antioch in Syria. That's why whenever you see Antioch, you see a modifier. You see something with it that helps you understand what he's talking about. That The church that sent them was Antioch in Syria. The church they are now, or not the church, but the place they are now going to where there will be a church is called Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch. It was a Roman colony. Paul often visited Roman colonies. Lystra is one. Troas is one. Philippi is one. Corinth is one. They were all Roman colonies. It was a nerve center. It was on the east-west artery for trade, and there was a military colony there. So it was a really important place. And so verse 14 tells us, from Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Well, it was common for Paul to reach out to see if there's a synagogue a Jewish synagogue in the place to which he was going because there he knew he would find people who were familiar with what? What do you think they're familiar with? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. And so much of what Paul would communicate, so much of what Paul would share with them about Jesus Christ is about how he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. And so he knew he would find people at the synagogue who were familiar with the Old Testament. Not only would he find Jewish people at the synagogue familiar with the Old Testament, but he would find God-fearers. Now, who are the God-fearers? They were Gentiles who had not become full proselytes, who had not fully converted to Judaism, but they had a great respect for the Old Testament. They had a great respect for the Word of God. They had a great respect for its moral backing. And so Paul knew that if he went to a synagogue, he could find not only Jews familiar with the Old Testament looking for the Messiah, but he could also find Gentiles who also had a great respect for the law. And so he goes... On the Sabbath day, he and the team go on the Sabbath day. And it says, after the reading of the law. Well, there were three parts to a normal synagogue service. There were three parts to a normal synagogue service. The, the first thing is that they would repeat the Shema. Anybody know what the Shema is? H-S-H-E-M-A. There's one. What else? There's two. Where does it come from? Deuteronomy what? Six. Right? 
Is that verse 4? Deuteronomy 6, 4, our seminary people know, right? <laughs> Way to go, Chris. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Is one. Monotheism. The Lord is one. So they began with the repeating of the Shema, and then number two, they would read Old Testament passages, one from the law, one from the prophets. You often see that term, the law and the prophets, because it was a reference to the Old Testament as a whole. So they'd read a section from the law and a section from the prophets. And then the third thing they do in the synagogue service is they would invite a qualified Jew in attendance to give an address. They would invite a qualified Jew in attendance to give an address. So Paul and Barnabas are invited to share a message with the people. Now, some believe that Paul and Barnabas may have visited with the synagogue leaders earlier in the week before the service and, and had set up this opportunity. Uh, we don't really know, but they are invited to share a message with the people. From verses 16 to 41, we have Paul's message. Now, if Paul's invited to speak, if Paul's invited to preach, what is Paul going to say? You don't know. He's going to say yes. He's going to accept it. Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. My goodness, do I have a message of encouragement? I have the good news to share with you. I have the good news to share with you. And from chapter 13, verse 16 to verse 41, Luke gives us Paul's message. Luke gives us Paul's message. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand, verse 16, and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Now his message is divided into three sections. The first section is an historical section where he talks about how the the Old Testament Jews had an anticipation for the coming and they were prepared for the coming of Messiah. Verses 16 to 25 share this historical perspective. Paul talks about their stay in Egypt in verse 17. In verse 18, he talks about their 40 years in the wilderness. In verse 19, he talks about the conquest of Palestine. In verse 20, he talks about 450 years. We read, all this took about 450 years. Now there are those who argue, where did Paul get this 450 years? Well, most believe that it included the oppression in Egypt, which was 400 years. It included the wilderness wanderings, which was how many years? 40 years. And it included the conquest of Canaan, which was 10 years. That's where Paul got his 450 years. So we have the stay in Egypt, the wilderness sojourn, the conquest of Palestine, which took 450 years. We have the period of the judges in verse 21, the latter part, in verses 21 and 22, excuse me, verse 20, the latter part, verses 21 and 22 is the period of the kings. There we have the mention of David. 
Verse 23, he mentions Jesus the Savior from this man's descendants. That is David's descendants. David, a man after my own heart, he will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not that one. That is the one that Moses said to expect in Deuteronomy. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Paul moves through the history of Israel, introduces the line of David. Now the Messiah would come from what line? The line of David. The Messiah would come from the line of David. That's the point that Paul is trying to make by going on this historic, historical excursion. He's trying to make the point that Jesus is of the line of David. And since Jesus is of the line of David, he is qualified to be what person? The Messiah. The Messiah. The promised one of the line of David is none other than Jesus the Christ. In verses 24 and 25, he talked about the ministry of the forerunner, the one who would come to announce the coming of Messiah. That forerunner was John the Baptist. Was John the Baptist whose baptism was characterized by repentance. And remember, whenever you read repentance in the Bible, don't think, feel sorry for that's not what the word repentance means in the Bible. Is that it doesn't mean to feel sorry for something. Repentance means to change my mind about something. That is when, for instance, when you became a believer, you changed your mind about who Jesus Christ was. Previously, he was just a teacher. Previously, he was just another religious leaders, leader. But when you came to faith in Christ, you changed your mind about Him. You understood that He is God incarnate. God in the flesh. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. A change of mind that leads to a change of direction. It doesn't mean to feel sorry for. John's baptism was a baptism characterized by repentance. What did they have to repent for? They had to change their mind about their reliance upon a law which they could not keep and they foolishly thought they could. They had to change their mind about the Mosaic law which they thought could save them and it could not. It was powerless to save them. The only power that the law had was the power to condemn. Because no one could keep the law perfectly except for one person. And who was that? Jesus Christ. Kept the law perfectly. Therefore, he is able to offer the forgiveness of sins. He kept the law perfectly. He did what no person could do. What did they have to change their mind about? Change their mind about their 
own righteousness, which wasn't enough, and changed their mind about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who had the righteousness that they needed to be right before God. Because the baptism of repentance, everything that he talks about historically points to Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation of Messiah. He comes through the right family. The right tribe. Paul is laying the groundwork for Jesus being the Messiah. The Jews expected a Messiah from the line of David whose coming would be announced by a prophet. John the Baptist was that prophet. You see how Paul's message is, is put together? Now, there's a second and third part, and actually some people see a second, third, and fourth part, which we're not going to get to today. But let me tell you what's coming. Verses 26 to 37, we've already seen in 16 to 25 the historical anticipation, preparation for the coming of Messiah. In verses 26 through 37, we have the rejection, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verses 38 to 41, we have an appeal for a response. An appeal for a response. You see, once you know the message of the cross, once you know the message of the Messiah whom God sent to bear your sins, my sins on Calvary's tree, it's necessary to respond. And so Paul calls for a response in verses 38 through 41. Some divide that into two. Some see verses 38 to 39, his offer of the forgiveness of sins. He alone could offer the forgiveness of sins because he kept the law perfectly. The law could not save. It could only condemn Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly. And so he can offer eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. Verses 40 to 41 is to some a warning and a call to make a decision about Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this morning as we close. What's your decision about Jesus? What's your decision about Jesus? Do you see that he's the fulfillment of what the Old Testament promised? He's the fulfillment of the Messiah. He's the one who came to die on Calvary's cross so that he could offer the forgiveness of sins. The one who kept the law perfectly because we could not. The one who gave us the righteousness necessary to help us to stand before God because we couldn't do it on our own. Have you understood who he is? Have you responded to him? One writer said, 
We need to repent or we will suffer judgment. We need to change our minds about who Jesus is or we will suffer judgment. So what's your decision about Jesus Christ? And we started out talking about how hard it is sometimes to share our faith. Do you find it difficult? Just tell your story. Just tell your story. Tell them what God did for you. Tell them what God did for you. Lord, we thank you for Paul's message. We thank you for Barnabas's wonderful character. We even thank you for John Mark's desertion because it helps us to understand that failure is not fatal. Help us as we face the changes that come into our lives with confidence in you, confidence in your word, and flexibility in the way we live. We pray in Jesus' name.